You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Ephesians 4 verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, not desirous to walk in our own strength, but to look to you for yours. In full recognition, Lord, that if we're to profit from your scripture, if we're to profit from your word, that we are utterly dependent upon you to bless us. Father, with this prayer, we want to acknowledge this. And with this prayer, we want to ask that you'd be pleased to bless us with understanding and bless us, O Lord, with um, uh, hearts that willingly align with your word as you give us understanding. So, Father, be glorified in our lives, O Father, and we pray that through this study, you would be increasingly glorified by our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've said this um, for the last couple of weeks, you know, what started out simply to be a simple flyover of Ephesians chapter 4 has turned out to be kind of a little bit of a series, and um, I don't say that to apologize. Um, You know, I try to uh, uh, leave myself as open as possible to the leading of the Lord uh, in sermon preparation and what to preach, and uh, hopefully, Lord willing, I'll say more about that in just a little bit. But um, as I've said, a simple outline of these verses would be uh, you have unity in verses 1 through 6 diversity in verses 7 through 10, and maturity in verses 11 through 16. And this is a a simple outline. You turn to the commentaries, they point to this outline, and it's it's um, an obvious outline of these verses. And two weeks ago, we began to look at this with the uh, the view of seeing the beauty of the church. What has sponsored this is our organization on, on May 1st, and uh, we, we're, we're looking, we, you know, we hear a lot of things that are wrong with the church. Uh, I think it's time we hear about the beauty of the church, and we've been looking at various passages. And two weeks ago, we looked at the unity of the church in verses 1 through 6. Um, and when we come to verse 1 in terms of housekeeping, uh, you'll recall that it's really important for us to, to remember that there's been three chapters of what we call the indicative. You remember that idea of the indicative and the imperative, two theological words that we use. What is the indicative? The indicative simply describes what God has done to us in Christ Jesus, what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. 
Paul uh, very carefully plows through three chapters of that, which is really important. He plows through three chapters of that before he gives us any of what we would call imperatives, uh, the imperative, which begins uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this is not to say we're not going to get any indicatives afterwards. We do get some. But the overall thrust of his letter uh, is starting out with what God has done uh, for us and to us in Christ Jesus. And only after that as well established does Paul then begin to develop how we should respond to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And that involves the imperative. And Paul sets us up in this transitional sentence in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of, uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Calling is certainly a, an important theme in this text, um, as well as walking. When the Scriptures call us to walk, Blessed is the man who walks, if you will. When the Scripture calls us to walk, the Scriptures are pointing to a lifestyle. It's pointing to a way of life, a way of life that's guided by a worldview, a way of life that's guided by uh, the centrality of Christ, a way of life that's word-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered, Holy Spirit-centered, all of the above-centered. So Paul is calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In verse 3, eager to maintain the unity. And we discussed that at some length. I won't go into all of the details. But um, one of the challenges before us is, uh, you know, we, we do come here on Sunday mornings eager to uh, study theology, eager to study God's Word, eager to learn some new things. Uh, we're eager in many respects to get uh, to get all of that right. Uh, but here we're being challenged to be eager about another thing also, and that is unity. Um, Paul describes it as unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, uh, to be unified, to unity, if you will. And uh, he begins to give us some idea of what this is and how to go about it. He sets forth a sevenfold argument for unity. He says there's one body, verse 4, one spirit, one hope. There's only one. Um, as, uh, as we hear of the one hope set forth by the gospel, as we hear there's one faith set forth by the gospel, as we come to believe that, we're brought into one body, that's produced by the gospel, produced by God working through the gospel in our hearts. We're brought into one body. So one body, if you will, one Holy Spirit, uh, one hope, one Lord. This would be a reference to Jesus in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And as usual, we see that the Holy Spirit is involved, the Father is involved, the Son is involved, the entire triune God is involved in this whole thing of unity. Um, and how are we to go about it? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, four complete opposites of what we're going to see and be bombarded with 24-7 as we leave this place this morning. Four complete opposites. And I, and I raise that to say that we're to be completely countercultural, aren't we? 
Uh, we're, we're, you know, when we were talking about humility, I raised self-assertiveness as something that's very common in our culture that's opposed to humility. Um, self-assertiveness, we're not to walk that way. Uh, a lack of patience with one another, we're not to walk that way. Uh, gentleness, we're called to be gentle. We're not to be roughhousing. These are the things we, uh, an unwillingness to endure with one another. These are things that we're going to see everywhere as we leave this building, aren't we? And we're called not to participate in it. Um, now, this is all unity, verses 1 through 6. Now, last week we began to look at, at uh, diversity in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Now, you see, now there's the individual. You know, in a Bible study a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks back, we were talking about marriage, and I had mentioned, um, it's a trick question, um, you know, there's a trick question, and I, I learned it from one of my professors, Dr. Denny Pruteau. He once asked us in the class, what's more important in marriage, the corporation or the individual? Most hands went up, and everyone wanted to say the corporation. And that's normally how that question gets answered. Because, and I think what goes on in our minds is we see so many marital problems that are a result of individual selfishness, and we hear a question like that, we just immediately say, listen, the corporation's more important than the individual. But the problem with that is, and there's a problem actually with the question itself, because the question itself is asking you to make a choice between the corporation and the individual. And we shouldn't make, a, uh, we, we're not to make a distinction between those two. We're not to choose between those two. There's a principle where we're to embrace both. What is important in marriage is both the corporation and the individual. If we so, if we so emphasize the corporation, then the individuality gets lost. If we so uh, emphasize the individuality, where's the corporation going to end up? And that principle is right here. It's, it's this, this principle is given to us right here. Verse, verses 1 through 6, we're given the unity, unity, unity. But the beautiful thing about the church, the beautiful thing about what God is doing, the beautiful thing about all of this, the miraculous thing about all of this is the Lord is bringing all of his children into one body, if you will, but he's doing it in such a way that does not compromise or delete the individuality, the distinctions. We're all different. Now, it's common to find unity in the world, um, and when you find unity in the world, oftentimes you find uniformity, right? But that's not what's being taught here. This unity embraces Diversity. Now, this I'm talking in some pretty abstract senses here. I don't know. You can tell me if I got this right. Uh, unidad is unity. Am I right? I'm getting a smile that says yes. And diversidad is diversity, right? Okay, you got it. I know you got it. But I had a sentence put together. Asuna unidad. Que no bora. Diversidad. Is that close? And I know bora. Bora means... Um, to delete or to erase. Uh, and, but it, uh, the scary thing about doing this is it also means a flock of sheep, doesn't it? Um, it is so scary to be reaching out to folks that are Spanish-speaking because sometimes when I'm just doing English 
with English-speaking people and you're talking about principles that sometimes are hard to grasp, you get stares like, could you go over that again? But when I'm doing this with some of my Spanish friends, I get those stares, and I'm not sure if it's the words I'm saying or it's simply the principles, and you end up with, um, you end up, you end up quite nervous, actually, and wanting to forget the whole thing. But what I'm saying by es unidad que no borra la diversidad is it's a unity that doesn't erase diversity. And I put this Spanish sentence here because I want us to get used to the fact that there are some Spanish people, people looking at this church. And I am praying that they're going to be sitting here one of these days soon, uh, more and more of them. Um, you know, it was a man came in to see me here two weeks ago, and, you know, he was asking questions, asking questions about Tri-State Community Church, you know. And uh, he, you know, he his English is his English is pretty good. It's fair, but it is his second language, you know. And we talk about things all the time that are hard to grasp in our first language. So, but at any rate, the beautiful thing about the church here is it is a unity that does not delete, does not erase the diversity. We're all different. You look at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It varies. There's many other places in the New Testament that speak to the same subject where it varies. We have five uh, lists, if you will, of spiritual gifts given in the New Testament. Maybe we'll look at some of those. Or maybe we'll look at all of them. You can look at all of them pretty quickly. And you'll see that these gifts are, are, are given According to the will of God, they're giving in, there's a lot of variety and there's a lot of variation to them. Now, last week we spent a lot of time in verses 8 through 10, and namely Paul's use of Psalm 68 and verse 18. I won't go into uh, all of that um, this morning, but um, what I want to say, what we need to say to set ourselves up for verse 11 is that what this is pointing to, Paul is drawing from Psalm 68. Because Psalm 68 celebrates victory and protection that God had given Israel through all kinds of things, from the time that he delivered them from Egypt and brought them into Jerusalem, from the time that uh, Israel was delivered from Pharaoh, delivered from slavery in Egypt, to the time that the Ark of the Covenant is being constructed, to the time that they're now coming into the Promised Land, and God's presence is being brought into the, uh, into the Holy Temple, into the Holy City, being represented by the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Psalm 68 celebrates that. And what Paul is showing is that is that foreshadows, that typifies, if you will, Christ Jesus' ascension going into heaven. And um, Psalm 68 uh, celebrates in ancient times when kings were or generals were out there uh, in their various, uh, fighting their various battles, fighting their enemies. When they conquered, they carried off a bunch of goodies, didn't they? They gathered up goodies known as spoil. Uh, spoil, sequel, uh, um, I think is the Spanish word for spoil or Spanish word for plunder, uh, if you will. Spoil. I didn't want you to get the impression. I'm thinking about an egg spoiling. Um, that's not it. Spoil are, are things that are valuable that the enemy has that, that uh, once a, an enemy is conquered, this stuff is all gathered up, if you will, and carried back. And that's the idea. Psalm 68 says... 
that when he ascended, it says, you ascended on high and led a host of captives, and you received gifts among men. And Paul quotes that verse in Ephesians, saying he, uh, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we were looking last week at that apparent contra- contradiction. You know, in Psalm 68, 18, it's receive, and in Ephesians 4, 8, it's, it's give, and we settled that. I hope to do a video on that. As soon as I figure out a way to do this in two and a half minutes, not easily done. But as soon as I figure out a way to do that, because people are always saying there's a lot of contradictions in the Bible, and we spent a lot of time on that one last week. But the, 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 the beautiful thing of it is what God, Paul's not contradicting himself. What he is showing is that Jesus receives, then Jesus gives. Jesus receives, then he gives. And what this proves is that every spiritual gift that we receive in the church comes to us through Christ. And if you've got, if you're curious about all that, you can look at last week's message, a video of last week's message, and hear all that again. We don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but I wanted, I wanted to share that to set us up for verse 11. Now, I think verse 11 is a little, it's a little clearer to see Paul's argument if you connect verse 11 to verse 7. Let me read verse 11, and then we'll connect it to verse 7, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Verse 11, right? Now, let's connect that because it's pointing back to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, let me read them together. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. What's the idea here? The idea here is as Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he receives. And as he receives, he gives. Now, the first question we're going to ask is, what exactly is he giving? Well, in this particular context, he's giving apostles, he's giving prophets, he's giving evangelists, he's giving shepherds, he's giving teachers. Does that sound clear? Everybody okay? All right, now what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk about apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. Because they're, they're, I think there's a lot of confusion on this. Apostles and prophets, especially prophets. Uh, the prophet thing is not that easy. It's really not. It's very. It, it's actually quite complicated. Um, let's do the apostle part first. Um, what does it mean? What is an apostle? Um, if you if you want to think of a continuum, like get a put a blank sheet of paper up in your mind and draw a line across it, and we'll make us a continuum. Okay, on the left-hand side of the paper, uh, apostle is simply every one of us. We're all apostles. And someone say, what? Well, we're all apostles in, the, in this respect. Apostle simply means sent. Jesus has sent all of us on a particular mission. We're all involved in this. What are we involved in? We're involved in discipling the nations. That's what we're involved in. That's, we're involved in publishing the truth. We're involved in sharing the gospel. We're involved in some way. That doesn't mean that we're all supposed to go home on Tuesday mornings and make videos and badger everybody to watch them. 
That doesn't mean that we're all supposed to do that. We're not. But it does mean that we all play some kind of role in sharing and publishing the truth of the gospel. And in this sense, we're all sent because we all have this charge. So in one sense, we're all apostles. Does that make sense? This was with a lowercase a, lowercase a. Now, as you go across your, your line on your piece of paper, go right into the middle. In the middle, there's another use of apostle. Sometimes uh, church planters and missionaries or mission developers, if you will, uh, are said to have embarked on apostolic ministry. What does that mean? That means that they've been sent or they've been commissioned, if you will. Uh, myself, uh, you know, on, on May 1st, what we do? My title changed in, in many respects. Now, this is a little bit ambiguous to us um, because, uh, you know, I don't think, I was thinking about this this morning. I don't think any one of you, anyone, whether those of you here or those who are missing this morning, I don't think anybody has ever introduced me to their friends or family as a mission developer. Um, Hi, this is uh, Rick Anderson. He's our church planner. He's our mission developer. Uh, How do you typically introduce me? You've introduced me uh, as your pastor. And that's that's, that's 100% accurate. Um, It doesn't mean that I wasn't a pastor for 14 years and I became a pastor on May 1st. Um, there, is, there are no church planners in the ARP who are not first and foremost pastors. You, know, you have to be ordained. You have to, in fact, beyond ordination, you have to get more training, and you have to go through a whole bunch more hoops. Ask Tammy about that. She will tell you in quite detail the hoops that I didn't, not just me, but she actually had to jump through a bunch of them too uh, because they wanted to be sure that our marriage would be able to withstand this thing. The spiritual warfare that's involved in this is intense. And um, it wasn't something that I, we both had to be assessed. Our marriage had to be assessed. And we led an examined life for a little while, didn't we? Um, but my point is, sometimes missionaries, if we were to be a missionary in the ARP, the same thing would apply. You know, we have missionaries all over the place. Uh, uh, church planning, we do a lot of church planning. And a lot of times, church planning or mission developer, there's a two terms for the same, uh, the same role, if you will, um, these are often referred to as apostolic ministries, meaning, and again, apostolic with a lowercase a, meaning that these are ministries where uh, we have been sent. You know, when, when we first began to think that maybe the Lord was going to use us to plant a church, we didn't take it upon ourselves just to start planning a church, I, I called up um, uh, the presbytery. I called up, he's, he's now with the Lord, but his name was Jim Whitkey. I called Jim Whitkey up because Jim Whitkey was chairing our ONA, our Outreach North America. That's the extension in our presbytery that, that's, a, that's involved in church planting. And told him, you know, I, I just, we've, we've got a small group of people that are interested in a Bible study could it be that the Lord's, we, we think the Lord might be stirring us to plant a church? Well, he said, start the Bible study. Let's see what happens. And it became an exploration. But my point is, we didn't take it upon ourselves to do this. We had to go through a whole bunch of hoops. 
And I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful thing to have to go through those hoops because when times get really, really tough, you can look back on all those hoops and you can say, Lord, I know you're in this thing because you had all these opportunities to say, you guys, I appreciate your zeal, but I want you to do something else instead. Follow me? It really helps you to solidify your calling. Calling is an important part of our passage right here. It helps you solidify your calling. Long story short, we were called. We ended up getting a call. You remember Ron Pritz extended a call. Ron Pritz, actually, you extended a call. Ron Pritz read the call. One of the things that we did in our, in our organizational services, Ron Pritz stood up here and he read word for word the call that was extended. And some of us were like, call? What's a call? What's a call? Well, that call is simply a charge. What, were you guys, what did you guys do? You guys have called me to be your pastor, Right? That's a call. Now, prior to that, we were called by the presbytery to plant the church. So in this sense, we were called, if you will. We were sent, if you will. This is something that we would call an apostolic ministry. Does that sound as clear as mud? Maybe clearer than mud? Okay. All right. Harry, I can't tell if you're smiling. I can now. I see the eyes. First, I couldn't tell if you smile. I was really hoping you're smiling, you know. Um, but um, you see the, the idea of calling uh, there in verse 1. I, therefore, a prison for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've received. Uh, this calling right here, I think what's in view is our, our call to Christ, uh, this inward call to Christ. But... When we're called to Christ, every one of us, we're called to some purpose in Christ. You know, Edmund Clowney said a long time ago um, that the call to Christ is the call to service. And um, Paul is pointing to this in verse 11. He is saying that Christ has given some to be apostles. Now, how is Paul using apostles? Back to your blank sheet of paper. Go clear to the right. And this is apostle within a capital A. And this is referring to the 12, the apostle Paul, and just a couple of others that are mentioned in the New Testament. And it can't refer to anyone else. Even though I've been involved in an apostolic ministry for the last 14 years, you've never heard me refer to myself as an apostle, have you? And I wouldn't let anyone else refer to me as an apostle uh, because there are some who take that. They take that title, and I think it's a dangerous thing to do. Um, I, I, I don't want to judge the motives or intentions of anyone's heart, especially those I don't even know. But it, to me, seems that it's glorifying the person. Um, the apostle that's in view here in verse 11 is apostle with a capital A. We might say a capital A, meaning it can only refer to the 12, the apostle Paul, and just a couple of others. Now, why would I say that? Well, in Acts chapter 1, when they're discussing the replacement of Judas, why do they replace Judas? Because Psalm 109 calls them to let another take his office. Right? So they're replacing Judas. And if you look there, if you go to Acts chapter 1, 
I'll show you the criteria. Some of you are well aware of the criteria. If you go to Acts chapter 1 and you look at verse 20, for example, Acts chapter 1, verse 20. Now, Judah has betrayed the Lord, and now the 12 have become 11, right? And they're like, we need 12. We've got to complete this thing. 12 is the completion. You know, one apostle for every tribe, if you will. And they're saying, okay, verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Okay, fine. All right, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. You see that criteria. He has to be somebody who accompanied them during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, you see, this is going to limit this thing to a very small group of people. In order to be an apostle with a capital A, you would have had to have been there for Jesus' baptism and had to have accompanied all through this three, three-and-a-half-year ministry uh, and seeing the glorified, resurrected Lord. Now, someone might say, well, wait a second, what about the Apostle Paul? I'm glad you brought that up, as I want to get to that next. What about the Apostle Paul? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me, because we, we have somewhat of an exception with the Apostle Paul, don't we? We have an exception with him. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, I'm in Romans 15, and that's not going to get it done. 1 Corinthians 15, and if you look at verse, uh, verse 4, uh, Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, you see. So he's appearing to the apostles, not in a vision, but he's appearing. Right? They saw him just like we can see each other. Make sense? And then in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, what's really important here is Paul says as to one untimely born. Now, this, this uh, phrase untimely born could just as easily be uh, translated abnormally born. It could also be translated miscarriage. This range of meaning of this word, miscarriage, abnormally born, untimely born. What's being made clear here is that this is unusual. It's not prescriptive through the church age, but it's descriptive of this particular step in the assembly of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? The Apostle Paul is commissioned, he is called, he is sent by Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is an unrepeatable thing, 
that is taking place. He is one who has been abnormally born in this way. So I, I want to spend a lot of time on this so that we see, uh, going back to Ephesians 4 and verse 11, that the apostles, this is an office that is temporary. It's temporary. Sometimes uh, once in a while, someone will ask me if I believe in apostolic succession, and I throw them for a loop when I tell them yes. I'm watching for facial expressions. Don't let me forget to explain that. <laughs> Because that demands an explanation, and I wanted to explain it, but we've got to do prophets here uh, pretty quickly first. And again, when we come to the prophets, we come to something that's pretty complex. Um, I think a lot of times, when you think of prophecy, what do you think of first and foremost? Generally speaking, some future thing being foretold, and somebody saying, okay, in the future, this is going to happen, Right. Um, that's just where I think our 21st century American minds go when we think of prophet. However, as one author has said, there is no stereotypical prophet. There is no stereotypical prophet. And I did look up stereotypical, and I don't remember. I don't know if I put it in my notes. Stereotypical. I hope you understand. Stere a stereo uh, something. I don't remember. That I get... Man, the vocabulary is amazing. Um, stereotypical, meaning like you have your, you have your Isaiahs, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But you also have a lot of other characters in the Old Testament that probably wouldn't be described or necessarily have the authority of an Isaiah or an Ezekiel or a Daniel, or a Jeremiah. You know, those are referred to as the major prophets, aren't they? You have the major prophets, and you have the minor prophets. And it's not because one is more important than the other, but it's really referring to the body of literature of one more so than others. You have 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. You have four major prophets in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, you also have... Uh, people in the Old Testament, maybe the, the only thing you hear about is one particular assignment that they're given, where they might come to a king and they might give him a certain word, and usually it doesn't end well for him, does it? He usually ends up in jail or something, uh, and, and he's referred to as a prophet. But we also come across schools of prophets. For example, in Saul, King Saul uh, is found among the prophets, if you will, towards the end of his, his kingship, and people are asking, is Saul now one of the prophets? Um, this group of unnamed people, or Obadiah, for example, uh, he hides, if you will, a hundred prophets, 50 in one camp, 50 in another camp, and you have all of these prophets. So here you have all of these people that are recognized as being prophetic, if you will, um, but there seems to be a varying degree to this as you look at the uh, literature of the Old Testament. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you discover something that's pretty close to the same. There is no stereotypical Old Testament prophet. There is no stereotypical New Testament prophet, nor is there a stereotypical prophet that we could say is, you know, the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Well, someone will say, well, okay, Rick, now would you explain that? Well, that's complicated, isn't it? 
But that's one of the reasons why we looked at Acts chapter 21 this morning. In case you were wondering how that fed into our discussion, now you know if you go back to Acts 21. And there, in Acts 21, there is a prophet known as Agabus in verse 10. And we're told there, while we, Luke seems to be uh, uh, counting himself, Luke, the author of Acts, is counting himself into this, which tells us that Luke was there. Um, while we were staying for many days, see, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, very clearly, what do we have here? We have a prophet with a capital P. Why would we say a prophet with a capital P? Because here he is proclaiming something to the church. And this something that he's proclaiming from the church is revelation in which he has received from God. And that revelation has made its way into the New Testament as inspired scripture, hasn't it? And that's taking us to the point here. Because sometimes prophets are referenced in the New Testament where we're talking about the gift of prophecy, if you will. Um, take a look at 1 Corinthians 14, if you will. 1 Corinthians 14. Especially if you look at uh, verse 29. And we're told that one of the gifts of the Spirit is the gift of prophecy. And there's a debate in the church as to whether that is still continuing today or isn't. I don't think we got time to get into that debate this morning. But look at verse 29. Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now, nobody's weighing what Agabus said. But they are weighing what some of the others have said. Furthermore, you find that there are women prophesying. There are prophetesses uh, in the New Testament. So if we wanted to do the same exercise that we did for apostles with prophets, we'd get another blank sheet of paper up. We'd put a line across it. And we would say, in, on, on, on one side, on the left, let's be consistent. On one side, we're all prophets. Why? Well, because we're all called. We're all called to proclaim. One of the functions of the prophet is simply, in fact, the prophet, what does the prophet usually do? It's not telling the, the future. Most prophecy is proclaiming the covenant. Listen, you could very well have someone in your life who's looking to you for the answers of eternal life. And if you do, you are the prophet in that person's life. I will promise you that. You're their prophet, as scary as that is. You are their prophet. You're the one who tells them about the Lord. You're the, maybe the only one in their life who's telling them accurately about the Lord. And in this case, with the lowercase p, you're a prophet. Now, uh, whether we want to argue if these gifts continue or they don't continue, we'll set that aside for right now. Let's continue in our continuum. There's the gift of prophecy, which we'll put in the middle. And that would be a gift or someone who just... 
God has gifted them to where suddenly they know something. I, I, I know something. I, I, I really think God has, I really think God has shown me something. And they sit down with you and they tell you. Um, that would be a gift of prophecy. That was going on in the time of the New Testament. That's not debatable. Whether it's going on now or not, we can debate. But it's not to be debated in times of New Testament. In the New Testament, this is taking place. There were people, there were men, and there were women who had this gift of prophecy, and they were, and they were disclosing the mind of the Lord. It's not up for debate. That's simply the, that's the record. Now, we're at the middle of our page. And on the left, all of us are prophets. In fact, right now I'm functioning as a prophet. And as long as what I'm sharing with you is accurate to the written word of God, I am functioning as a prophet. In the middle, we have people with the gift of prophecy. Now, all the way to the right, we have the prophet with the capital P. I would submit to you that Agabus is an example of that. Now, Let's go back to Ephesians again, and I'll move this to a close. So I know this stuff's not easy. It's not easy. You go back to Ephesians, verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets. That's the title of this morning's message, apostles and prophets. Now, these are two offices that, that are given for a specific period of time. If someone asked me, why do I believe? Do I believe in apostolic succession? My answer is yes, I do. And they're saying, oh, okay, so you believe that the apostles have handed their authority to another person who's has handed their authority to? No, I don't believe that. That's not what I believe. I believe that the apostles wrote their message down. And the apostolic succession is committed to the word of God. If you want to talk to me about apostolic succession, that's the way I see apostolic succession, that, these, that the word of God has that apostolic. Does that make sense? It's committed to Scripture. And I'll say, why would I say that? Look at Ephesians 2.20, which is part of the context of what Paul's talking about. Verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, back to Ephesians 4.11, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about gifts that Christ has received and then given to his church. And two of those gifts are the apostles with a capital A, a limited group of people. 12, the Apostle Paul, a couple of others, authenticated as apostles because they performed miracles. That was another mark of an apostle. They have performed sign and miracles, which demonstrated uh, their authority, if you will. It's not a foolproof demonstration, but it's demonstrating their authority. Typically, what Paul would do is argue from the Old Testament. That was the greatest argument that he had. It was greater even than the sign and miracles. So you had apostles who were communicating the Word of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. And you had prophets who were revealing, like Agabus, who are revealing the gospel, who are revealing these things. Now, in that first century, these things get written down. 
As they get written down, that authority gets written down. And what do we do every Sunday? We look to our foundation, don't we? But keep in mind, it's a foundation. The foundation has been laid. God is not continually laying a foundation. The foundation is the first part, and it's, 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 it's the second most important part to the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part because that sets the foundation. It makes it true. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ dies on the cross to purify us all. On the third day, he's raised, and 40 days later, he ascends. And when he ascends, he receives gifts, and he gives gifts. And two of these gifts are the apostles and the prophets. And what do the apostles and prophets do? They proclaim the word of God. They write it down, or they superintend its writing down. And it's given to us, and 2,000 years later, in Chester, West Virginia, 6,000 miles removed, here we study with great delight. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you have given us. Only looking at two of them this morning, Lord, but looking at apostles with a capital A, looking at prophets with a capital P. Well, Father, as we sort through this complicated stuff, Father, we ask that you'd be pleased to give us understanding, O Lord, that you'd be pleased, O Lord, to bless us, that you'd be pleased, O Lord, to uh, make these things, Lord, which can be blurry, uh, that you would make them clear, O oh Lord, that we would see that we are, we, we are not resting on wishful thinking, but we're rest, resting on a, a sure foundation, a foundation that's been superintended by you, O oh Lord, by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, committed to the apostles and prophets, and then written uh, by the superintended grace of the Holy Spirit uh, for us, O oh Lord, in your holy word. And we thank you, O Lord, for these two gifts that existed for a short period of time, which continue to testify, you being our cornerstone, that continue to testify to us uh, with the full sufficiency of the word of God. O Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.